Well, I'm sure that just about everybody listening here today has, at some time or another, been part of a conversation that goes something like this. Uh, you're sitting on an airplane next to a stranger, or you're talking with a friend over coffee, or you're up late at night catching up with a family member, and the conversation turns toward religion, towards faith and God. And as the conversation becomes more personal, one of you shares your faith story of how you have come to faith in Christ as your Savior and, and the positive impact that's had on your life. At that point, the other person, having listened, looks you in the eye and says something like, I'm glad that works for you. I just don't feel a need for it in my life. Now, if you're on the believing side of that conversation, you're not sure where to go from there. You, you've shared your story, you've poured your heart out as clearly as you can, the person has listed, listened uh, attentively and respectfully, it's just not making connection with them, they're not feeling the need to respond. And if you're on the receiving end of that conversation, you're not sure where to go either. This person obviously believes something very passionately, they want you to believe it too, but it's just not happening for you. You just don't feel the need for it. And so either way, the conversation comes to an abrupt and awkward ending with this line just hanging out there. I'm glad your faith works for you. I just don't see the need for it in my life. And that's kind of where we are today after four weeks of conversation about Jesus. We began on the first Sunday early in January and we demonstrated that there really is reasonable historical evidence to indicate that Jesus of Nazareth really did live and die and even rise again. We demonstrated that Jesus and, his, and the, the faith that he founded, Christianity, is good for the world. It really is. We looked at many of the advances that have been made in medicine and in science and art and, and education and justice and compassion, influenced by the teaching of Jesus and by the followers of Jesus. And then we learned that Jesus really believed himself to be and presented himself to be the Son of God, the Messiah of Israel, and the Savior of the world. And then all along the way, we heard stories from people who have really come to believe in Jesus and who have found in Jesus the answer to the deep needs and longings of their hearts. But there's still one more question to be asked. Do we really need Jesus? Or more to the point, do you need Jesus? I mean, is, does Jesus have to be for everybody? Can't it just be that uh, faith in Christ is a good thing for those who embrace it, but it's just not for everyone? I mean, that sounds very uh, reasonable and open-minded and pluralistic and postmodern. Certainly people are free to live and believe any way they choose to live and believe. God gives us that freedom. The problem is that Jesus doesn't really allow us the option of making him optional. He, he declares himself to be the one answer to the deep need of the human heart. He's not just one of many options for living a good and meaningful life. He is the option, the only option, for living a life as good and meaningful as it was meant to be. And the only way to experience eternal life beyond the grave. Now last week we listened to some of the remarkable claims that Jesus made about himself in the Gospel of John. I am the light of the world. 
anyone who's thirsty for life, come to me and drink. Anyone who knows me knows God. But perhaps the most outrageous statement of all he made was this one. Unless you believe that I am who I claim to be, you will die in your sins. There's not a lot of wiggle room there. Jesus seems to be saying here and in other places that if you want to live life the way it was meant to be lived, if you want to live life on the other side of the grave, then you need Jesus. You need to trust and believe and follow Him. And that's not always an easy thing for people like us to hear. We don't like to admit that we need anyone or anything. I mean, we're independent human beings. We're New Englanders after all. The idea that we need someone or something beyond ourselves doesn't always sit well. And besides, where does Jesus get off saying this? How can he make such a claim? There have been lots of great spiritual teachers and guides down through the ages. They've said some good and wonderful things. They've had a positive impact on the world. Why can't Jesus just be another one of those teachers? That's the question I'd like to go after today as we wrap up this series. Do we really need Jesus? So to answer that question, I want to step out of the Gospels and go to the New Testament book of Romans, a letter written by the Apostle Paul. So we're going to jump right into this letter, Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 12, and I'm going to be reading from the New Living Translation of the Bible. Romans 5, verse 12. When Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Now Adam is a symbol, a representation of Christ, who was yet to come. Now this book of Romans is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Christians living in the city of Rome. Now keep in mind that Paul was at one time an enemy of Jesus. He was a, a leading uh, Jewish Pharisee at the time, and he was trying to extinguish the message and the following of Jesus. But he had an encounter with Jesus, and it changed his heart, and he became not just a follower, but an apostle, the leading teacher of the early church. And so here he's writing this letter to the Christians in Rome. Paul's never been to Rome, so he's writing this letter to introduce himself and his message to those people. Now, it takes Paul eight chapters to introduce himself and his message. You know how preachers are. Eight chapters to do that, okay? We're jumping right in the middle, Romans chapter 5, so it's a bit abrupt, but let's just do that. He's talking here about the human condition. He goes back to the beginning of human history, to the very first human beings, to the man the Bible calls Adam, which is the Hebrew word for mankind. Now, we don't need to get tangled up this morning in how God created human beings, whether it was by direct means or evolutionary processes or some combination thereof. The essential teaching of Genesis is that God created human beings. He formed them out of the elements of the earth. He fashioned them in his image. He breathed into them the breath of life, which gave them the capacity to relate to him, to each other, and to the world that he made. And we don't need to get into a long debate about whether Adam and Eve were historical individual characters or whether they are metaphorical figures. Along with many conservative interpreters, I take them as historical figures who, who acted on behalf of all of humanity. But even if you take them metaphorically, the point is still the same. At some point, 
human beings acted in a way that affected the entire human race. And what they did was they sinned. That's the word the Bible uses. Now, we should just point out, Eve is not mentioned here by name because Paul is calling a comparison between two individuals, Adam and Jesus. But we certainly know from Genesis and the rest of the New Testament that, that Eve was certainly there and played no small role in what went down there in the garden. I'm just saying, okay? She's there. Adam and Eve sinned when they ate from the tree that God had told them not to eat from. For their own good and well-being and long life, he warned them, don't eat from that tree. But they did anyway. And Paul uses two different words to describe sin in this passage. The first word literally means to miss the mark or turn, turn away. The other word that we translate trespass means to fall away or to fall from. Either way, the idea is the same. At a certain point, Adam and Eve parted company with God. They wasn't so much that they broke the rules as that, as, this they, as that they broke a relationship. They cut themselves off from God. They declared their independence, choosing to do life their way instead of God's way. And as a result, death came into the garden. Now understand, death is not so much a punishment as it is a consequence God is not saying, you broke my rules, now you pay the penalty. No, this is the consequence of sin. When, when, when Adam and Eve severed their relationship with God, who is the creator and source of life, they cut themselves off from their lifeline. And death came to the garden. We might imagine an, an astronaut spacewalking. And at some point, this astronaut, for some reason, detaches herself from the mothership. Now, she can continue to travel and even drift off into space, but she's cut herself off from her oxygen supply, and so she will eventually die. That's a really scary thought, so I'm going to move on, okay? In a similar way, when Adam and Eve cut themselves off, severed their relationship with God, they severed themselves from their source of life and immediately began to die. Physically and spiritually, they're headed towards death. And as we're told here, and as human history has shown, the actions that they took that day would affect the entire human race. We have inherited their sinful tendencies, and we have followed their sinful examples. Sinners by nature and by choice, is how theologians put it. There's not a one of us who hasn't in large or small ways parted company with God, chosen to do things our way instead of His way. And as a result, we all suffer the same consequence, death. Physical death, which is the separation of our bodies from our spirits, and spiritual death, which is the separation of ourselves from God. If we were to use another metaphor, we might say that that day when Adam and Eve sinned, a virus entered the garden. A deadly virus infected Adam and Eve and all who would follow in their footsteps. And that virus is lethal. 
it leads to death. Now, I realize that sounds like a really grim diagnosis of the human condition. But can anyone really argue with it? That we were created for goodness and life, but we have succumbed to sin and death? Can anyone argue that people have not been infected by this virus? Is, is there anyone who has always done what is good and right and loving? Is there any human being whose story does not end in death? Paul's argument here is that these two, sin and death, have been with us from the very beginning and have affected every single one of us. Now, just this past week, there was an announcement made about a fascinating but disturbing archaeological discovery that was made actually a couple of years ago. It's an archaeological find in the remote region of Kenya near Lake Turkana. In a place called Nataruk, archaeologists have uncovered the site of an ancient massacre. They found the remains of at least 27 people, unburied, exposed to the elements. At least 10 of them had suffered violent deaths, blunt force trauma to the head. Others having evidence of sharp wounds to the head and neck and body. One of the bodies appears to be a woman, pregnant at the time, whose hands were bound when she died. Now, what scientists find so disturbing about this is, first of all, how old it is. Maybe as old as 10,000 years, the very earliest part of human civilization. And also, how brutal the violence was. Unnecessarily so. You see, up until this point, archaeologists, anthropologists have always concluded that warfare and this kind of violence came along much later in human history, after people groups had been formed and territories had been staked out and people had reasons for fighting with one another. But this is suggesting that human beings have been killing each other in brutal ways from the very beginning for no apparent reason at all. Science and scripture are telling the same story. Archaeology, anthropology, sociology, theology, they're all giving us the same story. Human beings made for goodness in life, potential for wonderful, remarkable things, and yet infected by this virus called sin that inevitably leads to death. And as I said, that's a grim diagnosis and one that nobody really wants to hear. But how else do we explain human behavior, the human condition? How do we explain public beheadings and ethnic cleansing and school shootings and child abuse and pornography and drug addiction, and racism, and bullying, and gossip, and all the ways we find to hurt ourselves, to hurt each other, to damage this world that God has given to us. How else do we explain this except to say that deep down inside something has gone wrong? A virus has taken hold of us that leads us to do things we would never want to do and to hurt people we never want to hurt. A virus that will inevitably 
claim all of our lives. Few of us went to see a play downtown the other night, a musical called Violet. In one of the scenes, a, a naive young country girl is on a bus, and she meets a rough-and-tumble soldier named Flick. She says, where did you get that name? And he growls, the reformatory. She says, oh, what did you do? And he says, honey, I was born. The rest took care of itself. And in a sense, that's all of our stories. We were born. And before we knew it, something had taken hold of us. And we were doing things we really didn't want to do and hurting people we really didn't want to hurt. And we're just never able to shake it. So what's the remedy for this deadly virus? Who can beat these twin terrors, sin and death? Well, thankfully, Paul's not done yet. Let's keep reading in Romans 5. But there is a great difference between Adam's sin and God's gracious gift. For the sin of the one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. But even greater is God's wonderful grace and his gift of righteousness. For all who receive it will live in triumph over sin and death through this one man, Jesus Christ. We don't have to beat sin and death, Paul says. Somebody's done it for us. Generations after Adam, another man came along named Jesus, also called the Christ. And just as Adam's action infected all of humanity, Jesus' actions can disinfect all of humanity. Remember those compare and contrast essays you used to, have to, used to have to write in high school? Compare and contrast the French Revolution and the American Revolution? How are they like each other? How are they different? That's what Paul is doing here in this section. He's comparing and contrasting Adam and Jesus. So first he compares them. He shows how they're similar. He says Adam and Christ are like each other in that both of their actions affected the entire human race. And then he contrasts them and says they are different from one another, one another in that Adam's actions brought death, Christ's action brought life. And now what action is he talking about when he speaks about Christ? We know what Adam did. He disobeyed God and ate from the tree. What did Christ do? Well, his action was like it, but different. He obeyed God when he died on the tree. Let's keep reading. Yes, Adam's one sin brings condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brings a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners. But because another person obeyed God, many will be made righteous. Now, speaking of high school essays, remember how you used to kind of say the same thing two and three and four times just to stretch out your essay? Make it look like you knew what you were talking about. Paul's letter reads a little bit like this right here. He seems to say the same thing two and three and four times. He wants to make sure we get it. But the idea is that Adam's sin ruined everything. Christ's obedience can save everyone. That's the message. In fact, let me bring back a couple of lines I spoke earlier in the message when we were setting up the problem. I asked, 
Is there anyone who has always done what is right and good and loving? Is there anyone whose life has not ended in death? And the answer is yes. Yes, there is someone and only one. Jesus conquered sin by living a sinless life, a beautiful, good, loving, in relationship with his father kind of life. As we heard last week, no one could make any charge stick against Jesus. So he lived a sinless life that we could never live. And then he died in our place and rose from the grave. And so Jesus is uniquely qualified to overcome these twin terrors of sin and death. He's overcome sin by living a sinless life and overcome in death by experiencing death and then rising again. So Paul's answer is yes, there is someone and he's the only solution to the human condition. As I was poking around uh, the internet this week, scavenging for some illustrations and things like that, I stumbled across a story, a missionary story I'd never heard before. It's a story about a woman named Gladys Aylward, who was a missionary to China in the early part of the 20th century. And Gladys went to China and worked among the poor, among the working class. She worked with merchants, and she worked in prisons, and she uh, took orphans into her care. When China was invaded in the 1930s, at one point, Gladys was trying to lead a hundred of her orphans to safety, to get them out of the country. They were being pursued by enemy soldiers and in danger of being caught. And so at one point, when it looked like they were about to be caught, one of Gladys's co-workers, a former criminal who had come to faith in Christ and become a believer, recognized what was happening, and he gave himself up. He acted as a decoy and ran off in another direction, drawing the pursuit of the soldiers who eventually shot him and killed him, while Gladys and the orphans made it safely across the border to safety. His one act of virtue saved many. And so it was with Jesus. There on the cross, his one act of obedience, Jesus drew the enemy's fire. He gave himself up for us. That, that the worst might be done to him. He experienced the worst this world has to offer. Blunt trauma to the head. Sharp wounds to the body. He experienced them. He absorbed in his body the virus that was killing us all. And his blood shed on the cross becomes the antivirus that can save us from this deadly sickness called death. And that's why we need Jesus. That's why he alone can say, unless you believe in me. No other human being, no religious figure, no prophet or teacher or guru or guide has ever dared to make these kinds of claims or ever offered themselves as this kind of a sacrifice. And so, do you really need Jesus? Well, only if you have a problem with sin and death. If, if you don't have a problem with sin, if that virus hasn't inf infected you, if you always do what's loving and good and true, then you don't need Jesus. 
but I'd love to meet you afterwards. <laughs> and if you don't have a problem with death, if you're not afraid of dying, and have no interest in life beyond the grave, then I guess you don't need Jesus. But if you'd like freedom from sin and hope beyond the grave, then you need Jesus, who can enable you to live the life that you were meant to live, as good and meaningful as it can possibly be, a life that begins now and goes on forever. But here's the thing. It's not automatic. Jesus will not force himself or his life on you. God didn't force his life on Adam and Eve. He gave them a choice there at the tree, and they made it. And God gives each of us a choice as well. Look again at verse 17. For if by the trespass of the one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? At some point, every human being has to receive that antivirus, receive the forgiveness that comes through Christ. We come to moments of decision at that tree called the cross where we admit our need. We believe that Jesus lived and died and rose. And then we receive the forgiveness and the freedom that only he can give. And so maybe the most important question isn't, do you need Jesus, but have you received Jesus? Have you come to that moment? Now, in just a moment, we're going to allow ourselves just a few minutes to think about where we are on our spiritual journey towards, towards Christ. But before we do that, I'd like us to hear one more story, the story of another man, not Adam, not Christ, but Nick, Nick from Wilmington. Nick, Nick is a part of our Wilmington campus. It's... Actually, his first time here in Lexington, and he needed a GPS to get here. So <laughs> we're glad to have you. You can say hi to your friends in Wilmington there and uh, share your story, Nick. Thank you, Brian. Uh, good morning, everybody. It's, uh, it's nice to be here with you all this morning. It's a great way to start Sunday and start another week. Um, so a couple of weeks back, Pastor Tom in Wilmington uh, approached me with the question, uh, do, do I really need Jesus? And he asked me if I would be willing to um, share a little bit of my story with all of you, and so that's what I'm here for this morning. Um, so it goes like this. <laughs> uh, my relationship with Jesus, um, it started way back, long before I can even remember. Um, I was raised in a, in a religious home. Uh, we attended a church regularly, and so I, I was baptized as an infant and, uh, and brought up in a, in a church setting. Um, I should tell you now that my parents were full of love and uh, nurture for us and for each other, and it was a, it was a nice place to grow up, and uh, I was blessed to be in that family. Um, you know, so we did the regular church-type stuff. We went to Sunday school, and I was, uh, went through the whole nine all the way through confirmation, which my brothers and I used to joke and call graduation, because we knew that once we made confirmation, that was it. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, looking back at my uh, church upbringing, though, it seems to me it was more like an, um, 
it was more like an educational experience, more like a history lesson about, about God and Jesus and the Bible. And, uh, and though I uh, enjoyed being there and, and um, you know, kind of liked the whole setting, uh, once I got confirmed, I, I, I pretty much made a conscious decision that I, that I was done with church. I wasn't going to go back anymore. And, um, and so I set out, and I was ready to start to build my life. And, uh, and that, that's what I did. Um, at, at a pretty young age, uh, early 20s, I was achieving some financial success. I was, uh, had gotten married, started a family, bought a home, all the normal things that people like to do. And, uh, you know, I noticed that... Um, Throughout the entirety of all these wonderful things being present in my life, I still had this feeling like something was missing or uh, something just wasn't quite right, that there was a, a sense of being incomplete and a, a feeling that, that I was lacking in some way. And, uh, and you know, my story is I, I tried to quiet the, that sense of lacking and emptiness in all kinds of different ways, and uh, ultimately what ended up being my escape was uh, alcohol and substances. Um, and that's just what it was. It was an escape from a, uh, from a spiritual sickness that I, I wasn't even aware that I was suffering from. Um, and uh, with that, I, I headed out down a, a long and painful road. Um, and over the next, next 10 years or so, uh, the progression of my spiritual disease kind of made its presence very well known in my life. And uh, all kinds of things started to happen. I, I really, uh, I ended up sinning in all kinds of ways that I remember as a kid vowing these were things that I was never going to do, and, uh, and I found myself doing all kinds of stuff like that. Uh, and, and in doing so, I proceeded to throw away all the worthwhile things in my life. I, I uh, became an absent father to my daughter. I um, was disconnected from family. I really did not have any friends anymore, and, and before too long, I found myself all alone and, and broken and, and in the middle of a huge mess that I had made for myself and I was clueless as to what to do to get out of that. Um, there were a lot of attempts along the way to make the turn and, and, and do something different and try to change what was going on in my life. Uh, what I didn't realize was that, it was that uh, I didn't have the power to make that change on my own and I, I needed help and I needed more help than I knew I needed. and. Uh, and I knew something, something had to change. And, and through some circumstances, it finally did. Uh, I ended up in a, uh, in a setting with some friends. And uh, these were people who shared their each individual and moving experience of how God had changed their lives and changed their existence in a, in a positive way. That their experience uh, hit me in such a way that it was an undeniable to me that these people had... Uh, found a way to live in which that I had, I was clueless. Um, but anyways, they, they gave me an opportunity to make the same commitment they had made, and, and being well aware that my own devices were getting me nowhere, I, uh, I surrendered at that moment, and I, and I took that chance, and I made that commitment, and, uh, and I decided that I was going to give my life to Jesus. Um, and after making that commitment and starting to practice some new things on a regular basis. Uh, you know, I was able to make right some of the wrongs I had done to my family, and I was able to see some, um, some relationships start to mend. I was able to be present some more in my daughter's life, and, and, uh, and you know, at that point, it became pretty clear to me that these were all things that Jesus was with me walking through each and every situation. These were things that I did not have the ability to change or do on my own before making that commitment. 
Uh, and, you know, from the first day that I made that commitment through today, through this morning, through right here, right now with everybody in here, the, the changes in my life have been overwhelming, uh, remarkable, and, and you may even say that they've been miraculous. Um, so somewhere in the midst of this process, uh, the desire to go back to church was put on my heart, and, uh, and I found myself at the doors of Grace Chapel uh, right here with all of you. Um, you know, before I headed in for the first time, there was like that tornado of thoughts going on in my head, and I was undecided whether I was going to make the trip in or if I was just going to bolt out of the parking lot. And, uh, you know, I had these thoughts like uh, just fear and skepticism and apprehension, and, and uh, am I, are they going to accept me or are they going to shun me or are they even going to talk to me? Or does anyone, will even anyone notice I'm here? Um, but I said a, said a prayer in my car, and I made my way into the doors of the Wilmington campus, where I've uh, been attending regularly for about nine months now. And uh, the atmosphere was surprisingly uh, inviting. It was warm. It was friendly. There were some people with genuine smiles. And um, the, uh, the service that day, I remember being powerful and, and really hitting a mark for me, like it was designed and directed to me, you know. And that seems to be the case very frequently here, which is... Not by coincidence. Uh, <laughs> so all in all, it was a, it was a very comfortable experience, and it, it made the decision to come back the following week a real easy one. And, uh, and I've been attending ever since, and, and we have a, a great uh, group of people over in Wilmington. It's, it's uh, something that we really look forward to being part of every Sunday. And uh, it's, it's like home, you know, and I never saw that coming. Me at home in a church was like, <laughs> wow. It's pretty cool. Uh, Anyways, looking, looking back in hindsight, you know, I can see many situations through my life where I believe that Jesus was, in fact, calling me to, to follow. And um, I hadn't used up enough of myself yet. I hadn't used up enough of my options yet. And I just was not ready to hand the reins over to something besides myself to, to drive this thing. And uh, what is, what's remarkable is when I finally did make that decision and I was in a position where I reached out and I needed that help, that hand... The hand of Jesus was right there waiting for me. Um, so the question, again, is do I really need Jesus? Me? Do I need him? I can answer that pretty simply. It looks like this. My, my life run on my own means leads to sin, anger, resentment, futility, loneliness, um, fear, and an emptiness inside it, and a feeling of incompleteness. Um, since giving my life over to Jesus, it's been... 100% different. It's characterized by being full of love, hope, tolerance, peace, joy, forgiveness, gratitude, and the promise of a future that lies in the hands of a loving God. So I found my truth. Yours is up to you. I want to thank you all for letting me share. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Nick, for sharing your story, letting us be part of your journey. Thanks to the Wilmington folks uh, for welcoming him as well. It's probably a good time for me to stop preaching, so <laughs> as we wrap up our series, we'd like to give ourselves a little time to think through where we are on our journey of faith as we've been talking about these past weeks. So I'm going to bring back the diagram we looked at last week, uh, the spiritual journey chart that we use sometimes in our courses around here. 
I'd like to take a moment, try to identify where each of us might be on that journey and where the Lord might have us go next. So just follow along with me for a minute. It could be on, that you are on the very far end of that journey. In fact, you may be feeling indifferent to the whole thing. The Jesus story is, it doesn't seem very interesting or relevant to you right now, and indifferent is the best way you could describe yourself. Or maybe you're skeptical. Maybe it's gotten your attention, but you're just not inclined to believe a lot of the things that people say about Jesus or the gospel, and so you're a little more negative than positive. It could be that you're confused. And you've begun taking a look at some of these things, but there are so many opinions out there. You've had so many good and bad experiences. You're not sure where you are in terms of faith. Or maybe you're seeking. Jesus has caught your attention, and you're intentionally taking a closer look at his life and teaching and the message of Christ. Now, there are other stops along the way through these steps, and it's not always a straight line, but you might find yourself in one of those spots. But sooner or later, you come to a decision point to a moment that we call surrender, one that Nick was describing just a moment ago. And that's a moment where you stop fighting, stop running, stop resisting, and finally admit that you can't run life on your own and live the life you were meant to live. You need help, you need forgiveness, you need a fresh start, and you surrender to Christ at that moment. It could be you're right at that moment now making that decision. Maybe you've made that decision recently, and just in the past year or so, and you describe yourself as a new believer. You're just beginning this life of faith, and it's a great start. Now, it could be that you made that decision, but now you find yourself stalled on the way. And we can get stalled for all kinds of reasons. We get distracted. We get lazy. Maybe there's something in our life that we're not ready to surrender to the Lord right now. And so, if you find yourself stalled, it's best to just admit it, because it happens to all of us. Or maybe you've come out of that and you describe yourself as a revived believer. Maybe in the past year or so, you have found your way back to God, back to church, back to a relationship with Christ, and you're glad for this revived faith you have. Or it could be that you are simply a growing believer in Christ. You haven't arrived yet, you don't have it all together, but you're making progress, you're growing in your faith, you sense God's hand upon your life, and I hope we would have many people who would describe themselves as growing believers. So in just a moment, we're going to allow you a moment or two to actually physically mark where you are on that journey. Inside your inside grace that you received when you came in, you should find two of these spiritual journey cards, and I'll ask you to take them out right now, and if you don't have one, if you missed it, just slip a hand up. The ushers will come down in all of our venues and make sure you get one. So if you need a pen or a card, just slip a hand up, and the ushers will make sure you get them. Now you have two cards there. The blue card is for you to take home with you, for you to mark where you are. And if you're in between some steps, that's okay. You use that card any way you want. But on the back of that card are some steps you can take depending on where you are on that journey. So the blue card is for you to take home. The green card, we'd like you to leave with us, to turn in as you leave. We would love to get a sense for where this congregation is across all of our campuses on the spiritual journey. And if you're sitting here thinking, hey, I'm just on the outside looking in, I'm only here this one time, we want to hear from you. We want to hear from everyone and get a sense of where folks are. If you decide to leave us your name, that's wonderful. We can be praying for you in particular, but either way, We'd love to get a card from everyone, and we'd love to have you 
uh, take one home as well. So as you leave, there'll be baskets where you can drop them off. And if you find yourself at that moment of surrender, you're thinking about whether this is the time you're ready to make that decision and trust Christ, we're going to invite you at the end of the service to come on down front here, and a few of us will be ready to meet you here. We have a little booklet we'd love to put in your hand that can help you think through that surrender decision. If you're watching online, you can fill out the card too at the end of this message, and we would love to hear from you. So we don't have many opportunities like this to slow down, to be honest with ourselves, to hear the voice of God, and to intentionally think about our next step on the journey of faith. So let's lean into these moments as we commit them to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity we've had this morning to consider once again the claims of Christ, to consider where we are in relationship with Christ, to face our own sin and brokenness, our own great need, and the possibility of forgiveness and freedom and a fresh start. Lord, we invite you now in these next few moments by your Holy Spirit to meet each one of us in a very personal way. Help us understand where we are in relationship with you, to be honest with you and with ourselves, and to invite you to show us where we, you would like to take us next. So meet us in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name.